Please be seated. The New Testament parable of the friend at midnight offers us one of the more dramatic New Testament pictures of prayer. A man is woken in the dead of the night by a friend hammering on his door. Someone has arrived late at night who needs to be fed. This presents a dilemma for our sleeper. His family are asleep. He can't just wake them up. Yet, though friendship is not enough, the persistent thudding at his door eventually wins the day. The parable throws into sharp relief the imperfect friend being contended with and the perfect God that Abraham and we intercede with and shows us a lesson from the persistence of the person pleading for help that I think in our passage Abraham learns too. One commentary on the parable says this, Boldness in prayer overcomes the praying person's apathy, not God's perceived insensitivity or reluctance. To practice persistent prayer changes the hearts and minds of those praying, helps them to recognise God's work and shows that they are serious. In this strange conversation with God, Abraham becomes a respectful yet forceful intercessor in a way that both displays and grows his heart for both people and for God's justice and glory. And so, as we may remember from last week, Abraham has had some divine visitors who he looks after. The promise of the son is given, a quarter of a century old promise. Now, finally, all those years of waiting, it's just over the horizon. And the angels go on to Sodom. Abraham has seen them part of the way, but now he stays and talks with God. God is preparing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and he chooses to involve Abraham. Why? Verses 18 and 19 give us the answer, don't they? Abraham has been marked and chosen for greatness. He's going to birth a family and people that follow God's ways and ultimately birth Jesus, the Messiah, who will save us all. And because of his faith, God is in covenant with him to bring this about. The book of James tells us that because of this, Abraham is God's friend. And we got a sense of this last week, didn't we, as Margaret spoke to us about the meal shared before the announcement of Isaac's birth. And God involves his friend Abraham, who he has just confirmed an amazing promise to, knowing how he is going to respond. He knows that Abraham will intercede in the respectful yet persistent way that he does. And his intercession, his bartering for the deliverance of any who are righteousness is what God wants to bring out of this situation. And this, I think, is for two reasons. Partly, as our opening quote suggests, to do something in Abraham himself, but also because of the importance of praying for people in itself. 
Come on. Yeah. Psalm 25 says this. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Likewise, another psalm, Psalm 8, says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour. Abraham knew God through their covenant. And we have an even greater privilege of access, don't we, through the new covenant given by Christ. And God wants to draw us into an ever deeper relationship with himself. When we look at intercession more specifically in a few moments, we'll consider how God partners with us in prayer. But let's often take time to be thankful, shall we? And never take for granted how amazing it is for us, fallen, sinful creatures made of dust, to be in covenant friendship with God. And so, a question perhaps begged here in verse 21 is, why does God need to go down and see? Does he not know already? Is his omniscience failing him? Of course the answer to this question is no. Perhaps human language is just being used here as an opening gambit. Perhaps the angels are looking for more people who might be inspired to pray for others to be delivered also from Sodom. Perhaps, too, this isn't just an exercise in fact-finding, but also in empathy, in God coming down to be with his people, to know in a more personal sense those who have cried out to him against the evil of Sodom. The Bible gives us many wonderful instances, doesn't it, of God coming down to be with his fallen people. To call Moses in one instance in response once again to the cries of his people. Or perhaps the wonderful instance in Daniel, which you may remember if you were with us when we studied that book together last autumn, where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego experience a fourth person with them, like a son of man in the fiery furnace. God just being there with his people to give them strength. And of course this ultimately foreshadows Jesus, doesn't it? The Son of God coming down to where we are and to deliver us. And so this encounter between God and Abraham is oddly similar to an encounter that Moses is given in Exodus chapter 32. We remember that Moses has made a journey up Mount Sinai and that while he's away, Israel makes the golden calf falling into sin and idolatry. In anger, God makes Moses the seemingly bizarre offer that he will destroy them and give him another people. Moses says no. These are the people God gave him, the people whose miraculous journey to freedom has glorified God's name throughout the known world. It can't end here. It can't end with Egypt, with God's enemies being proved right. So is God talked down here? We know that the Israelites did pay quite a price for their failure, But would God have destroyed them totally if Moses had only said, yes, please, I'd love to have some followers with two brain cells to rub together just for once? Or is Moses' heart for his people and for God's glory being revealed and deepened? 
I think it is, and I think that this is primarily what's happening to Abraham too. Abraham in interceding is not only revealing his own heart for Lot, for God's justice to be exhibited and seen, and perhaps forever else, uh, for whoever else may be ready to flee from Sodom also. But as our quote at the beginning said, he's taking hold of God's work in prayer. There's a quote that's attributed to C.S. Lewis, and it goes like this. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Abraham is also interceding, isn't he, from a standpoint that has faith in God's justice. He cries out in verse 25, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He knows that God keeps his promises. And like Moses, he wants God's justice to be displayed and seen. Has anyone here who's a teacher ever told somebody, come on, you can do better than this? You can do better work than this. You can behave better than this. Because there's something in them, isn't there, that you know can be drawn out. Obviously, God is neither a naughty student nor somebody who's not fulfilling their potential. But what Abraham shows us here is that we can appeal to God's justice, his mercy, his promises, his character, all that he has revealed to us about who he is. Will we get to know our God from his word so that we can do that? In the parable of the unjust judge, we again see a comparison between a corrupt judge who's failing to defend somebody who would have been one of the most vulnerable members of society at that time and God, the righteous judge. The judge in the parable didn't want to right a wrong. God does. Abraham has faith in God's justice, and that trust is mutual. God trusts Abraham to intercede. And we know that Abraham is interceding for Lot and his family here as he works on whittling the number of righteous people required to save the city down from 50 to 10. And perhaps he's praying for other people too. And a question many commentators raise at this point is, why stop at ten? Why not get it down to one? Would one righteous person be enough? There's a famous phrase, isn't there, if I was the only sinner on the planet, Jesus would still have died for me. Is ten enough for Lot's household if no one else is going to follow? Did Abraham perhaps overestimate the number of righteous people in the city to begin with in the extravagant um, bartering language that he uses here? But it actually seems to be God who ends the conversation at this point. And so perhaps the task of intercession, of getting Abraham to contend spiritually and also have the work in him done of getting his heart enlarged and revealed, is done. But is this the only thing that's happened? Has God's mind been changed at all? Can we 
change God's mind. I remember a family holiday in Morocco where my father would take great delight in haggling with street traders over the price of souvenirs, and maybe some of you have been to some of those places too. But is everything in life negotiable like that, even God's judgment? These questions have inspired writings and cultural motifs ranging from Augustinian theology to a Kate Bush song in which a character famously desired to do a deal with God to swap lives with someone else so that they can empathise with her. The late Star Wars actress Carrie Fisher once said, everything's negotiable. Whether the negotiation is hard or easy is another matter. In the part of the Moses story that we looked at a moment ago, it says that God relented. In Genesis, it talks about God's repenting of making man before the flood. So what does this mean? The clue is in a root Hebrew word which carries a deeper meaning than just repentance as we know it, as we're commanded to repent. It means that God is grieved both for us and at our sin, that he feels for us in our fallenness, that he wants to help us and he only ever wants to bring judgment as a last resort. And that the lesson God taught Moses in Exodus 32 models his own unending commitment to us. But here in Genesis 18, it doesn't tell us that God has relented or changed his mind in any way. Abraham's haggling has fulfilled, not changed, God's purpose. In his essay, Prayer and Work, C.S. Lewis suggests something else too. That when we pray, our free choice to intercede has been foreseen by God from eternity and woven into his plan. Even though we speak it here and now, it's seen and accounted for from eternity. He may or may not be right about that, but it begs an interesting question. Was Abraham's intercession foreseen from eternity? Is ours? And if so, does that place an even greater premium on our prayers? And so, the end result of all of this is that the guilty are still destroyed, but the innocent are delivered. In the beginning of this dialogue... God notes that he is involving Abraham because of his great purpose for him. Now Abraham not only has, from the first half of this chapter, the final fulfilment of the promise of Isaac, but his sense of God's justice has been further reinforced. And although some of the choices we've seen Lot make through this journey that they've been on together and separately don't show him to be a terribly righteous man. He makes some very bad choices. In 2 Peter, it does say this of him. And if God rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And that's a promise for us too to keep hold of. Lot had many faults, 
but he did know right from wrong. And he knew that there was something more than what was around him. He had a bit of faith in Abraham's God. And we all know people, don't we, who know there's something more than this, something more than just the everyday, that there's got to be an ultimate truth out there, but just can't quite connect to it. People who need our prayers, as Lot needed Abraham's. Though, as we'll go on to see next week, Lot's exit from Sodom is not a smooth one. He has enough faith in Abraham's God to be dragged out. And perhaps Lot also has enough foresight and knows enough about the promise made to Abraham to see where this quarter-century-old promise of the son, Isaac, is going to lead in the end. To the greater promised son whom Isaac foreshadows. To the one who does what Abraham and Moses, great intercessors though they are, cannot do atones for sin himself. Finally then, Abraham shows us that persistent prayer does as much in us as it does in the circumstance that we're praying about. And we know, don't we, that just as Abraham interceded here, so Jesus intercedes for us, and so in turn it's incumbent on us to intercede for others. When we say the Lord's Prayer together, the words, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking that God's kingdom would advance in people's lives, in places, in situations, as we contend for them in prayer. As Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it's because the battle is spiritual that intercession can be such a long wrestle, but the rewards are great. How many people do we know who have come to the Lord after years of prayer, years of crying out to God for them. And it's worth remembering here too, great promises that we are given about prayer. Luke chapter 11, everyone who seeks will find, the door will be opened to all who knock. Romans chapter 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. We are never alone in prayer, even though it often seems that we might be. The Spirit is always with us, helping us. And so, how many times have we been guilty of saying we'll pray for someone, but then forgetting? Have we failed sometimes to pray for someone because we've got a grudge against them or for some other reason have we lost heart in prayer sometimes because the answer seems to take so long knowing that this world like Sodom will come under judgment in the end will we be steadfast in praying for people to escape that by coming under God's grace as we close Ezekiel chapter 22 says this. 
I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. Obviously, this is a later time in a different circumstance and we can only wonder whether Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared if more people had stood in that gap sooner. But the lesson for us is that Abraham was that man, along with Moses. He was that intercessor. And so will we be.